John, new book, congratulations, a great read. Tell us about it. What's the name? What's the title? How did you arrive at it? It's called The Whale in the Living Room, which is um, a bit of a wistful title, but uh, one that I've come to enjoy. Uh, it was um, suggested by the publisher, in fact. But um, what it means to me is how we came to love the sea through the images that come into our TV in the living room. And, uh, of course, it's about the whale's living room as well. And uh, there's yet another version of that, which is that it's like the elephant in the room about things that we should say uh, which haven't been said about the sea. But listen uh, to your adventures. Um, you've done so many dives. I think you spent, what, over two years at sea and 1,500 dives, John? You must have seen some spectacular stuff. Yes, I, I think I spent about two years over the last 20 at sea, and that's why I've written this book, because I think, you know, I felt after a while that I'd like to share it with people. I'd like to share the idea that uh, of how I know the sea uh, and how I've seen the sea firsthand in all sorts of places all around the world and places that I was lucky to get to and, and, and many people never see. So hopefully I've brought that to life in the book. So let's start with the, the biggest, the blue whales. Certainly the blue whales are the most memorable. And do you know what, in 1999, when I was first uh, filming for Blue Planet, I uh, hadn't ever seen a blue whale. I'd hardly seen a whale. I'd had a background in underwater photography, but it was only for little things. And um, so I was very excited myself to see it when I turned up in a place called La Paz, which is in uh, Baja, California, um, in the Sea of Cortez, or as the Americans know it, the Gulf of California. And um, I didn't know what to expect. But um, I had, uh, through my friend Mark Carwardine, who is a, a very expert whale um, author, um, met some people who he said would help me and one of the ways they would help me and he said it's really difficult even though a blue whale is big to find it in the first place is to use aerial survey and he put me in touch with his friend Sandy Lanham who had a little Cessna airplane so we went with her and sure enough after about two or three days she spotted them and she was excellent at spotting them. She she worked for um, surveys for the Mexican government, so she knew what she was doing. And she'd say, oh, there's a blue whale over there. And suddenly the plane would turn before you had time to even look yourself. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, she took us over the blue whale. In fact, the front cover of your book has a splendid aerial photograph of uh, a blue whale on the surface of the ocean. Yes, it, it does. And that is quite a spectacular sight. It made me wonder how sailors um, had known they were blue because really they're only blue when you see them from up above and I guess they must have been standing on their top masts and looking down uh, because on the water surface they're a sort of a light grey mottled colour and it's only the reflection really of the water um, a bit like white sand ref makes um, you know the lagoon look ultramarine blue uh, Blue whales are reflecting the light of the sea, actually, and that's why they look blue. And, of course, they are the biggest living creature, certainly as far as we know. I don't, I don't imagine there's something bigger down there that we don't know about, but we can come to that speculation in a moment. What, give us a sense of the size of them, John. I'm, I'm assuming that you got in to the water with blue whales and were close up to them filming them. Yes, we had tried to film blue whales every which way you could, from the air, from the surface, and in the water, as you say. And uh, people hadn't actually done that before, even 20 years ago. They had, of course, 
got one or two shots of blue whales but they, because they're quite fast because they're quite difficult to catch up with there hadn't been really any good documentary footage on blue whales and it's surprising as that sounds and going into the water with them is quite amazing uh, particularly in a place like Baja California where the water is is you know sometimes only about 15 feet visibility and these things are charging through the water at up to 30 miles an hour and they're they're weighing a hundred tons and they're coming towards you like a freight train and perhaps in a way luckily for us they were sensitive to even little human beings in the water in front of them and they would always veer out of the way which was a problem um, because uh, it meant that we couldn't easily get underwater shots I imagine that would be absolutely terrifying, though. Were you not frightened? Well, I think that that's the sort of view of the sea that I would like to bring to people in the book, is the idea that through my experience, the sea isn't terrifying. It's a beautiful place, and there's so many mysterious and wonderful things to see there. And that's what takes over. Um, you know, of course, you're sensible and you take people's advice and, and you, you, know, you try not to put yourself in harm's way. But usually the animals are sensitive to you. Um, and, you know, if you do the right things, you, you won't come to harm. And you will see some of the most extraordinary things on our planet. Did you get an opportunity to um, get up close to one that was um, floating as opposed to charging past you like a freight train? Well, do you know what? In that uh, in, in Blue Planet 1, 20 years ago, um, we only got one underwater shot of our own in the whole month that we spent trying to to uh, film the blue whales most of it was surface and aerial stuff um, uh, that was partly because the visibility was bad but it was also because of that uh, awareness that the blue whales had of us uh, actually uh, later on in the sort of history of filmmaking if you like of wildlife filmmaking people have got some even better shots uh recently a chap called david reichart working for the hunt got the pictures of them feeding underwater and he told me that the difference because david was with us on the shoot in in 1999 he told me the difference between what he did recently and, and 1999 was that the whales had stopped like you say around a, a big patch of krill and that luckily the water was also clean and he could see them and they could see him so they knew he wasn't a threat whereas in the situation we were in in Baja California in 99 the visibility wasn't great so perhaps they they were being a bit wary of us too just as well really I mean I don't know if you've seen footage I've seen it a few times on YouTube of um, I think there were humpback whales you know the way they they uh, bubble net and then they come up to the surface and a diver was in the way and and he ended up in the mouth of the humpback wheel and i imagine the blue wheel mouth is even even bigger fortunately on that occasion he was spat out pretty quickly but there's always that possibility isn't there well it can happen uh but you know um we accept risk in life to a certain amount especially if we can get some sense of what it is uh, we all go in cars and we all know they're pretty dangerous in certain circumstances um, so once you've looked at all the safety procedures and the support you've got and you have got professional uh, boat people with you you've got professional scientists who can advise you uh, and so on and actually of course you're not allowed n anywhere near these whales unless you've got both the scientific and the filming permits um, and then of course you've got to respect them in fact in that shoot in, in the whole month uh, we only got 
close enough to get the tail shot, which has become a sort of iconic shot of Blue Planet One. Um, once, uh, in fact, I made, had a little scoreboard of the number of times the whales came up but went um, close enough to film. And they've got to be about half a football pitch away, um, otherwise, because you, know, you can't chase them. So, so uh, you know, you can slowly um, drift across towards them. Anyway, my score, final scoreboard for the whole month was was blue whales 158, humans two. <laughs> but that those two times were the, all the all we needed in the end. Yes. Well, look, I I can I can sense the awe with which you filmed them and lived in their presence for a while. Uh, so let's go from one end of the scale to the massive, right down to the the tiny and the the minuscule. And you you came up with some equally fascinating footage of of much smaller creatures maybe living on the seabed yes um you know the the book isn't all about blue planet by any means it's it's about the 50 or so films that i've made on the sea and uh one of them was to do with uh the deep sea i had in fact paid my own way to go on a scientific cruise um actually i was invited on a spare place on the cruise but i paid my own way to get there and i bought my own film equipment to film some deep sea creatures which I knew we'd get up from a research trip done by Harbour Branch with the Scripps Institute in San Diego. This this involved a, a trawl to about 600 metres, a very clever system actually, just a standard trawl net but one that could be opened at different depths in the water and in fact what we're talking about is not the bottom of the sea nor is it the top of the sea, it's the bit in the middle and the bit in the middle of the sea is often forgotten but in fact is the biggest habitat for life on this planet and is that uh, where most of the creatures of the sea live john it is just by the fact that it's the largest space yeah. the mile or two from the surface to the seabed it's not perhaps that dense but if you take it as a whole the numbers would be astounding and of course if you go to microscopic animals you know we're talking about more things than it, stars in the universe you know but um one of the most extraordinary creatures, and in fact there's several extraordinary creatures there, but there's they're some pretty ugly fish. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure their mum likes them, but, it, you know, it's not... A, there. Uh, there's things like the gulper eel, um, and uh, the gulper eel is um, like an eel... Well, I've described it on my YouTube channel, actually, as an eel with a mouth like a pelican, and that's exactly what it's like. In fact, it's just like the mouth of a pelican with a tail, and um, what it does... Uh, is opening its big floppy jaws and sucks in any fish uh, but it's quite a dark looking animal and it's got a lure on the end of its tail a bioluminescent lure so like the anglerfish it'll sit in midwater now most people and i know from some of the comments i've seen online think it's a horrific creature very fearful of it it might help to know that it's only about as long as your arm, you know. So uh, people think that it's much bigger. Yeah, because there's no sense of scale. But a lot of these things are quite small. Even the anglerfish that we all know about, the the one in Nemo with the big teeth and the and the lantern above its head, the deep sea anglerfish. Because of course there are lots of other species, but the deep sea anglerfish looks really really scary. Uh, but in fact, it's it's pretty much smaller than your hand. You know, the, 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 that gulp reel was first found in about 1890. I traced some of the history of the deep sea in the book of deep sea research and only relatively recently that we understood these creatures and we still don't know how they breed what their life's like or even how they eat john give us a sense of um the 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 real depths of the ocean and how unexplored they are i mean i think people are more and more aware by 
by dint of the fact that they can see it on television, that there are great depths of the oceans that we know nothing about. You've gone pretty deep, but there, there, there's obviously vast areas of the ocean that we know nothing about and the creatures that are in it. Yes. I mean, my first-hand experience, which is, again, you know, what I'm trying to give through writing about it, is that I have been in the submarine down to about 2,000 metres, and that is extraordinary. It's going through the habitat I've just described, the biggest sort of three-dimensional space for life on the planet, and right down to the seabed. And when you get down to the seabed, it's completely dark, of course, you can see some, some blue flashes everywhere because there's a lot of... Um, what they call bioluminescent light down there, glowing creatures. So there's a lot of light signalling, which looks like a little bit of a firework display. But then you see the lights of the submarine light up these big bushes, and they look like bushes, but they're actually tube worms, giant bushes of tube worms. that look a bit like the tumbleweed on western sets, except completely rooted into the seabed. And uh, these things are able to live without uh, light or even the nutrient systems that we know. They're animals, but, uh, but they're living on uh, sulfides, on hydrogen sulfides, which they're able to extract from the seabeds from some of the uh, vents down there. So things like those tube worms uh, and another extraordinary habitat called the brine pools, which are underwater lakes of salt, were only really understood maybe 40 years ago you know so there's still many many things in the sea that we need to discover and understand in fact one um, extrapolation from a uh, scientist looking at the discoveries over the years says that there's still about 20 or so large creatures to be found in the sea which no one has ever seen and what does he mean by large do you think over two meters things like perhaps the oarfish or uh, the sunfish which we know are, are very large fish uh, that there'd be more things like that but sadly um, not ichthyosaurs and uh, giant creatures like blue whales at the bottom of the ocean <laughs> <laughs> one of the um, creatures that fascinates me that i've seen in in some of your filming is the mantis shrimp which sounds like um uh, well shrimps we eat them we, we love them they have great character and all the rest but the mantis is a bit of a boxer isn't he yeah, yeah, they can have a bit of a violent reputation. I'll get onto that in a minute, but it's not really why I love them. They're so beautiful. They're one of the creatures I love most in the sea. I remember a very short encounter at the end of a dive with a mantis shrimp in, in Indonesia off Sulawesi, and we were diving in this very strange habitat, which is volcanic. It's called muck diving because it's like diving in gravel, black gravel. And uh, you think nothing's there. But when you get your eye in, there's thousands of creatures amongst that gravel. Uh, because it's like pumice, it, it, it has lots of cavities and places for animals to live. And one of the animals that burrows there is a beautiful creature called the peacock mantis shrimp. You know, so why is this creature so beautifully coloured? And just to describe it, its its main body is predominantly blue with flashes of red and it's got yellows and oranges and it's got two massive big blue eyes on stalks. It looks, I suppose, superficially like the shrimps that we know, but it's a much longer body and it, uh, it, almost like a cartoon animal, these little eyes stick up on stalks. And not only that, they look at you. The, the eyes rotate and it's quite clearly got some interest in you because it's just it's just analyzing you and if you look very closely at the eye there's much more going on than you would imagine what uh, size is it so it's about um it's about the size of a shoe 
when I when I first came across it, as I say, I was uh, near the end of a dive, and I thought it was like a colourful rat that had just gone past my feet, and I and then then it stopped and looked at me, and I looked at it, and we were, <laughs> we, we were both surprised. Those so those eyes, um, they have a they have the ability to see in sixteen different colours, uh, maybe like primary colours. It's sometimes difficult to imagine because our senses are so different but we see with three primary colors it's thought that they see with 16. As a matter of fact it's, it's not really the right way to say it they've got color receptors uh, which is pretty much the same thing as having uh, different cells for different colors so 16 different color receptors equates to 16 different primary colors perhaps and, and in us three color receptors equates to three you know, red, blue and green colour receptors. So in the mantis shrimp, they've got bags more than we have. They can even see in various types of polarised vision too. And in several shades of ultraviolet, the light blue colours. So why has it got this superb vision? It's because, probably, they're analysing the very pattern that we see, which has such complexity, for finding a good mate. Consequently, their vision, as well as their colour patterns, has evolved to the nth degree. But as usual, that's not the whole story. You know, some scientists believe that um, all these receptors in the eye are actually making the eye do more work, which is faster than if the same sort of analysis was happening in the brain. And uh, that allows them to respond very quickly to prey in the coral reefs. So they can see in those 16 different colours, they also have a little centre part of their eye which scans like a television camera. And you can see it scanning going backwards and forwards all the time. So quite an alien sort of eye, really. Uh, but it impressed on me what amazing life forms there are underwater and how different they are to everything we know on land. The, the eyesight, I presume, is very useful when it catches its prey, which it does somewhat differently, doesn't it? Yeah, um, actually, it, you know, these animals are multifaceted. They're, they're like a, they're almost like a, you know, some sort of gizmo that has lots of bells and whistles and they've got two very special modified claws that look like giant clubs that really box things and with some remarkable muscle power they flick forward so fast that it's a blur in the water people who filmed it at high speed see a cloud of steam in front of it as it as it moves through the water because these club-like claws are going so fast they create a vacuum in the water in front of them and a, a vacuum means that the water will boil at a lower temperature. The effect of it is to make a double bang, which adds quite a lot to its destructive force when it hits a shell. And when it hits something, it, it can smash right through a clam shell, which is one of the things it eats. So it knocks its prey senseless, basically. Knocks its prey senseless, and it, it uses it like a can opener, like we'd crack it, use a hammer to crack a coconut. It, it uses um, this club organ to crack through clam shells. I, I suspect that one of the dangers of us talking about the vastness of the ocean and the wonderful variety of life in it, that uh, despite the fact that we're aware that the oceans are polluted, we many people might think, well, it's so vast, pollution can't be having you know all that much effect, surely. Yeah, uh, well, you'd think that, wouldn't you? I mean, you go right the way back to something like the uh, dodo, which which uh, was that bird which became extinct in Mauritius. And at the time, I think humanity thought that we could continue farming and taking and hunting everything 
um, and that we couldn't affect nature. And it became as a big shock that the dodo became extinct in, in a fairly short time. Um, and uh, I think it caused some people to rethink things. And then in the uh, 40s, uh, that was the first mass reduction of plastic, um, it, which was done in, in, for World War II, although there had been other plastics like Bakelite, which, which was the first one, which Leo Bakerland, uh, which I, who I mentioned in the book, uh, uh, in, invented in about 1910. However, uh, it wasn't until after the war, and in fact it wasn't until the late 60s, early 70s, that people started noticing plastic in the water. There were two scientists who went to the Sargassum Sea, which is um, off uh, Florida, basically, uh, where seaweed floats in the water, a type of special seaweed called Sargassum. And uh, amongst that, they'd been doing some sampling with, with uh, plankton nets, and they were amazed to find that they had sort of 3,000 pieces of of um, plastic in the net. This was 1972 in, in every sample. And uh, they had, then they realised what was happening with plastic. It was going... Um, you know, everywhere. So that's 1972. How long ago is that? That's um, 50, 50 years ago. And uh, so 50, for 50 years, we've known that we've been putting plastic into the sea. It's only recently that we've started to realise how bad it is. You know, it gets into everything in the whole food chain. And are you very pessimistic, John? You, do you write about this in the book in terms of uh, the future? No, yes, I do. I'm not pessimistic because what's the point of that? You know, if you can't, if you want to give up, then, then that's the end of it, isn't it? Um, uh, but um, there are things you can do, and and I mean, and there are places, and I've been very lucky to see them. There are places which uh, the environmentalist Sylvia Earle, the ocean champion, calls hope spots, and she uh, points out that there are places in the world which are roughly like the sea and how it used to be before you know industrialization and um i've been to these places off uh, the galapagos um off uh, in, in french polynesia off tahiti and off colombia and you know uh, that, an island i went to off colombia 400 miles off the coast diving there you would see maybe you could see up to a thousand sharks and every time you went in the water you would go through shoals of fish that you you they wouldn't get out of the way you actually had to swim through the fish and and that would go on for five minutes you know before you got to the other side of the shoal now that is how the abundant the sea can be and it is how the sea was before we um you know exploited it and it's how the sea could be again these hope spots are seeds that could reseed the ocean uh, and if only we let it there are some signs that we are doing that we're we're 30 percent of the the oceans we're trying to protect at the moment although how we do that is another question because you need vast resources to protect the sea to police it with boats and so on um, but there are new techniques like the satellite techniques which look at where fishing boats are etc so it's by no means hopeless we've just got to be fast about it now well speaking of boats i think we'll end on the uh, the note that uh, in one particular boat you got a bit closer to a whale than you had expected. Yes, this is a. In some ways, it's an embarrassing um, story, but it's um, it's the time we uh, accidentally roll, rode a whale. There's a, there's a there's a chapter in the book called "The Accidental Whale Riders," uh, 
<laughs> which you don't really want to talk about because it's um you know it's a no-no to harass whales and we wouldn't want to do that in any way shape or form but um unbeknown to us a uh, a whale um surface right underneath our our boat we hadn't seen it it was we were miles away from another whale who turned out to be a female and i think this was a male that was courting her who had come up from behind and as they do they need to they're mammals they need to breathe air so so he would have surfaced and by coincidence he surfaced right under our boat and he lifted wow. us out out of the water and i looked <laughs> looked over the side and i just saw skin uh <laughs> And 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 it, and, it, and it blew, and then very gently let us back again. But if you want to read that whole story, of course, I'm going to tell you to buy the book. I w was uh, in the Bay of Fundy very luckily many years ago with my four daughters, and we were whale watching, and um, a whale surfaced very close to us, and uh, a Canadian tourist uh, very close to us who was very experienced whale watcher said we're all going to be well sprayed and i imagine you were well sprayed on that occasion john with rather well fish, not fishy only, breath. well not only that uh the I, I heard this you know the blow of the whale right yeah. under underneath our little rubber boat and um then i could all i could hardly breathe it was like it was like somebody had been eating far far too much garlic and I realised that I was now breathing in the expired breath of a whale that had been underwater for at least 20 minutes, you know. So uh, I guess that's a one-off. A unique experience. John, it's been fascinating. Thank you very much. The book is called The Whale in the Living Room by John Ruthven, R-U-T-H-V-E-N, pronounced Riven, but spelt Ruthven, and it's available on Amazon now.